Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The fundamental problem is that we are led by a political class which moves from, you know, university course on the environment or that sort of obsesses about net zero straight into power and has no real connection with, you know, industry, agriculture or the communities where they are conducted. There is a very big pushback, I think, in the making against net zero. And I think any government that thinks it can steamroll this issue over the population is going to find itself in a very uncomfortable place. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Ross Clark. Ross, welcome to the show. Good afternoon, Brendan. Uh, It's great to have you back on. The last time we had you on the pod, we were talking about your brilliant book, Not Zero, which is about net zero and the craziness of net zero, how expensive it will be, how it probably won't even help the planet very much, but it might destroy lots of jobs. It was a really good sucker punch against the ideology of net zero and the idea that we need to rush to net zero by 2030 or 2050 or whatever else people are saying. And I think I wanted to start off today by asking you where you think the discussion about net zero is at right now, because it seems to me there are some positive signs. I think there's a recognition among lots of people right now that we will need fossil fuels for some time to come and we need to be energy dependent, etc. So there's positive signs, but there's also, of course, negative signs, not least with the continuing climate change alarmism coming from groups like Extinction Rebellion very aptly aided by the BBC and sections of the Labour Party, which tell us if we don't achieve net zero, we're all going to go up in a pile of flames. So what's your reading about where the public discussion is at right now in relation to the net zero idea? Um, well, I think what's happened in the year since we, we last met is that um, as soon as the um, sort of net zero targets, I mean the sort of interim targets on the overall path to net zero by 2050, as soon as they collide with reality, they tend to get dropped. And we've had this with um, the pullback on the 2030 ban on petrol and diesel vehicles. We've had it on the boiler tax. We've had it in um, in Europe on um, you know Germany to reopening coal mines and coal-fired power stations and so on. And for several years, the governments have been labouring under this idea that the public's all behind net zero and they'll accept virtually anything that, that's done in its name. Uh, you know, this is on the sort of back of uh, opinion polls which show general support for net zero. But as soon as you ask people the specifics, like do you want to pay more for your heating? Do you want to pay more for electricity, motoring? Do you want to stop flying anywhere and so on? Well, you get a very, very different answer. And this is what governments are sort of slowly dawning on them, that um, as the targets become real and start hurting people, they're going to be revised. And I think that's what's really happened over the past year. Yeah, absolutely. And I wanted to ask you about where 
COP28 fits into some of this discussion because that's a big thing that's happened over the past year in relation to the climate change issue, in relation to the supposed phasing out of fossil fuels and the cleansing of the planet from the noxious human footprint, as some people would view it. Um, you read an interesting piece. COP28, as listeners may know, took place in Dubai towards the end of last year. It was the usual decadent festival uh, people expending more uh, carbon emissions than most of us do in a lifetime just to get to Dubai and live it up for a couple of weeks while talking about the end of the world. Um, you wrote an interesting piece just pointing to the, a difference in language between, on the one hand, campaigners who say, get rid of fossil fuels, stamp it out, you know, we must phase them out and, and rid the world of this this ugly phenomenon. And on the other hand, political leaders and business leaders who were using a very different kind of language, one that kind of acknowledged the fact that, look, we're going to have to have more coal and more gas, and we're going to have to use this stuff for some time to come if we're going to feed our own people and people around the world and, and so on. Uh, what do you think COP28 told us about the reality of the discussion about climate change now? Because it does seem to take place on two levels, doesn't it? You have the hysteria which often makes the front pages of the papers and it gets young people going onto the streets and so on. But then you have a recognition, at least among some people, that burning fossil fuels is absolutely essential right now to the well-being of the human species. Well, I mean, the particularly subtle um, use of language is that all the campaigners say, we've got to get rid of fossil fuels, stop using fossil fuels. And if you listen to, say, John Kerry, who's a US climate envoy. He was using the term unabated um, fossil fuels. Well, what that means is that he was recognising that we're still going to use fossil fuels, we're still going to need them, but he was sort of leaving open the possibility that um, you know we use them with carbon capture and storage and such technology to you know suck out the um, carbon emissions. That was a very big and um, difference in language which was not sort of actually noticed by a lot of people and um just look at what those countries were doing uae what's is hosted the whole thing yeah, investing billions in increasing oil production same with brazil you know the new government heralded as a great change from bolsonaro and um you know they're all environmental goody goodies and in with the cop 28 business and they're uh, saying the right things. But, you know, look what they're actually doing, which is to increase oil production. They want to be the world's fourth biggest producer by 2030. I mean, that's the Brazilian government's position. Canada, again, was, um, you know, trying to drive the sort of final communique in a direction which suggested that we're not going to use fossil fuels anymore. But at the same time, they are increasing fossil fuels. And they've got America, which, um, you know, record gas production and so on. So, you know, what they're saying and what they're doing, two completely different planets, but it's, it seems to be only the sort of Britain that's really, um, well, you know, Rishi Sunak has um, said he's grant these extra licenses for oil and gas. But, you know, if we end up with a Labour government, you know, we'll be virtually unique in the world with you know, actually doing what we're we're saying. You know, we're actually matching the climate rhetoric, the anti-fossil fuel rhetoric. So, um, yeah, I mean, the rest of the world, there is a sort of realism behind the um, rhetoric you get at these conferences, which recognises that we are going to be using fossil fuels for decades to come, and um, there's no route to 
phasing out fossil fuels in the immediate future unless you want us to go back to the caves. Yeah, I, I think that's really interesting. The uh, As you say, the flickers of realism at events like these, I always have kind of two responses to a cop gathering. The first is to think, God, what a bunch of shameless people who can gather there and spend so much money and some of them flying in on private jets in order to wag the finger at the rest of us. So I always have a kind of angry response. But at the same time, I also, if you look at what gets said in some of these discussion rooms, and if you look at what comes out in some of the documents, there is, as you say, a realism often and a recognition that countries around the world, countries that want to develop and grow, are going to have to continue using fossil fuels. One of the things that really came to a head at COP28 in particular at the end of last year is the divide between pretty privileged Western activists who have made it their life's mission to get us to net zero as fast as possible and to get rid of ugly fossil fuels and luxuriate in this uh, fantasy that we can all go back in time and have a nice life. A divide between that and the expectations of fast developing nations like India and China and Brazil, as you mentioned, and South Africa and other countries that are pretty adamant that they're going to continue using coal, they're going to continue using these dirty fuels in order to propel themselves into something approaching modernity. That's an element of realism that's often missing from uh, the output of Western campaigners who don't seem to recognise and don't really seem to care that there are billions of people around the world who don't yet have what we have. Well, exactly. I mean, the chances that India, say, is going to suddenly phase out its coal industry and just to suit the Western environmentalists is not realistic. I mean, China is the world's biggest investor in renewable energy, wind and solar and so on, but it is also building masses of coal-fired power stations still. I mean, it's a growing economy. It's really hungry for energy and wants it from all directions. But of course, what, what you did get at the conference is you you get a lot of developing countries which were engaging in the the loss and damage um, debate, the reparations debate, Western nations prefer to call it loss and damage. They've obviously uh, latched on to the idea that um, you know the sort of guilt of Western nations is a potential source of um, money for them, and they are you know they're very willing to discuss that. Well, they're not so willing to. Uh, put their name to uh, phasing out all fossil fuels. Okay, let's look a little bit at some of the continuing hysteria around net zero. I mean, I think I have felt over the past few months that there have been elements of realism in the discussion, which I think is inevitable. You know, even politicians can't be so insane that they think they can just continue down the net zero road with no consequences and no pushback. Um, But let's talk about one of the areas in which we have seen what are potentially some of the devastating consequences of the net zero ideology. This is something you've written about, which is the Port Talbot Steelworks in Wales. Um, And two of their blast furnaces are being closed, which is going to lead to the loss of more than 2,000 jobs, around 2,800, I think. And it's presented, it's packaged up, it's talked about in the public square as a further contribution to net zero. We'll get rid of some of those um, nasty fossil fuels involved in the creation of steel, particularly in the blast furnace stage of steelmaking. Talk to us a bit about what you think that tells us about the lingering lunacy of some of the net zero ideology, where we think we can just shut things down, put people out of work and somehow save the planet, none of which seems to be accurate to me. Well, the Port Talbot um, decision, it 
really gets at the sort of perverse decisions that we're getting into as a result of net zero, because um, the fundamental problem with one of the fundamental problems with this target is it's only based on territorial emissions. That is, the carbon emissions physically spewed out within Britain. It excludes the emissions emitted elsewhere in the world in the name of creating food and other goods for UK consumers in China, India, and so on. What's perverse is that, you know, in order to achieve the UK net zero target, the government has this incentive to close down industry and agriculture in Britain and import goods because then the carbon emissions in the manufacture go on some other nation's carbon balance sheet. What's happening with Port Talbot is government sort of chuck money at um, the owners to uh, close down the blast furnaces and switch to an electric arc furnace on the basis that electric arc furnace is a much cleaner way of making steel. But the thing is that electric arc furnace only does half the job. You know, steel is a two-part process. You have to extract the iron from the iron ore, and then you have to turn the iron into steel. But the electric arc furnace can do the second part of that. It can't do the first part. So by closing down our blast furnaces, and this is happening in Scunthorpe as well, you know, we are going to lose our primary steel industry. And in future, we will only be able to make steel from either scrap metal or from imported pig iron, which has been made in a blast furnace somewhere else in the world. So it just sort of completely reduces the uh, the, the breadth of our steel industry, essentially. I mean, it's not that you can't make steel from um, scrap metal. Of course you can. And, it, you know, it's perfectly sensible that we, we use scrap metal and we always have used scrap metal because long before recycling became fashionable, we had scrap yards, Steptoe and Sun and everything. But, um, you know, a growing global economy cannot live on recycled steel alone. So, you know, the emissions are simply being transferred to somewhere else in the world. But, you know, our government thinks it's achieved something meaningful by closing down our steel industry, primary steel industry, and chucking so many people out of job. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, it's Brendan here. I just wanted to remind you that you can still buy my book. It's called A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable, and I've really been blown away by the response to it from readers, reviewers, Spike supporters. People really like this book, and I think you're going to like it too. It covers all the insanities of our time, from climate change hysteria through to COVID authoritarianism, through to the trans ideology. And it basically makes the case for more freedom of speech, more debate, and more heretical thinking to challenge the conformism of our times. So what are you waiting for? Go to Amazon right now and order my book, A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. And now on with the show. Yeah, it, it is extraordinary. I mean, the entire spectacle makes you recognize the craziness of net zero. So on the one hand, you have ostensibly left-wing activists 
cheering a course of action that puts working class people out of good work, uh, you know, which seems a, a contradictory thing for so-called progressives to do. And at the same time, as you say, it's not going to save on um, carbon emissions and, and it could well increase them because, uh, you know, if we're going to have steel come from China, we've got to consider the transportation costs of that as well. So it, it really does point to the point. some of the points you make in Not Zero, your book, which is that this initiative is not even going to be very good for the planet and certainly not going to be good for many working people. Um, another British case I wanted to ask you about, which you've also touched on in some of your recent writings, is about Hinkley Point C, the nuclear power plant um, that's being built in Somerset, and it is continually being delayed. I think the latest date is 2031 or 2032 that it will eventually open, which is later than expected. The price of it is going through the roof all the time. It's going up by billions uh, seemingly every year. Um and it's extraordinary because Britain is losing its nuclear power plants. I think you made a point in one of your columns that by the time Hinkley Point C opens, we may not have any left and we might just be waiting for this one to come online so that we can eventually get nuclear generated power. Do you think that's another expression of the almost suicidal streak in uh, the net zero ideology for countries like Britain and other Western countries too, where they elevate this rush towards a supposedly cleaner future without thinking about what the nation itself might need, in this case in relation to you know abundant nuclear-generated energy for the country. Well, if we're going to get anywhere near a carbon-free, emissions-free electricity grid, which the present government wants to do by 2035, Labour wants to do by 2030, then nuclear power would have to be a huge amount of that because you know, unlike solar and wind, it is reliable. It's there 24 hours a day when you want it. So nuclear power is always supposed to have been part of net zero. But, you know, as you say, nuclear industry is going backwards at the moment. We've got one big power station being built in um, Somerset. But by the time that opens, all but one of our existing nuclear power stations is scheduled to have closed. The only one that will still be open at that point is supposed to be Sizewell B in, in Suffolk. So the nuclear industry in Britain reached a peak in the late 1990s, and it has steadily been going backwards as older stations have closed. And so we're down to about 13 or 14% of UK electricity is now produced by nuclear. Well, that's going to fall down to, you know, by 2035, even in the best scenario that Hinkley C actually opens, would be down to about sort of 7% or something. Nuclear is a diminishing resource just at the time when we really need it to be there. To get Hinkley C built, government first had to offer this. Uh, enormous strike price, it's a guaranteed price for many, many years of £92.50 per megawatt hour at 2013 prices, rising with inflation. And um, you know, taxpayers were supposed to be off the hook. They were supposed to be protected against any rising costs in construction. But you know, it's got to the point now where a French government, an EDF is you know, French public company is now getting to the stage of sort of hinting at the UK government, well, you're going to have to chip in to finish this thing because the costs have risen so much. We're soon going to be in the situation of being, you know, demanded a handout by EDF 
who you know otherwise would say, well, we'll walk away from it. And um, I don't think the government's going to leave a half-built nuclear power station on the Somerset coast. And of course, originally it was supposed to be funded by Chinese money. Well, that disappeared quite a while ago. And um, you know, the, the whole thing's going to be horrendously expensive. It, it was an experimental design, and by the time it was actually commissioned in Britain, the two projects, one in Finland and one in Normandy, they're already hugely delayed, and the Finnish one is is now open. I think the um, one at Flamanville, Normandy, is due to open this year, I think. Um, but, you know, they've had a lot of problems with it. They had a lot of cracks in the structure and had to sort of go back and rebuild parts of it. And it's years and years late. And, you know, I mean, that's what's happening to Hinkley Sea as well. So um, it's so sad that we lost our own nuclear industry because after 1995, when Sizewell B opened, we didn't build anymore. And the whole expertise that had been built up over the previous sort of 40 years just dissipated. And, um, you know, we're now left with relying on the, the French companies to build the nuclear power stations and, um, frankly, going backwards. So, you know, how are we supposed to get a carbon-free grid by 2030 or 2035 without nuclear? I just I just can't see it. Do you think it's symptomatic, the Hinkley uh, plant in particular and the problems besetting it? Do you think it's in- indicative of Britain as a country that is no longer very good at building things and getting projects done. Um, you know, you think you think of the new runway at Heathrow, which just seems to take forever, and even the decision about projects being allowed to happen takes a long time, and then the projects themselves take a long time, and expenses continually seem to grow, and no one seems to have the wherewithal to ensure that these things happen. Uh, and there are all sorts of pressures on the government, of course, because everything has to adhere to um, climate change rules these days. And there are often court cases saying, well, this latest project or this latest road building project or whatever it might be doesn't adhere to our climate change requirements. And therefore, you've got to slow it down, suspend it, call it off. And there are other pressures as well, of course, people, you know, the nimbyism phenomenon, for example, or simply, I guess, being technocratic for some time now in terms of our political class and how the country is run, we, we seem to have lost the ability to see things through. What do you think the Hinckley thing tells us about Britain as a nation in the 21st century? Um, well, it tells us a bit about Britain, but also it tells us a bit about France. I mean, the, the infrastructure problem is, um, is a Europe-wide thing. And look at the airport in Berlin that took many years and many extra billions to finish. I think there's a it's a more widespread problem just than Britain. But um, if it wasn't tortuous enough to uh, get infrastructure projects built in Britain, it's becoming ever more so because of the net zero legally binding commitment, which has given the pretext for environmental groups to challenge just any infrastructure project. And you look at Heathrow's third runway. I mean, it was 1946 when that was first proposed, the runway north of the A4. The um, Green Groups challenged it, and they actually won in the appeal court. The appeal court said, well, government can't build this because it's in contravention with its carbon reduction promises. Then that was overthrown in the Supreme Court because they pointed out that um, 
at the time the decision was made to go ahead with the third runway, while the Paris Agreement had been signed, the net zero commitment wasn't actually in law. Does that only followed in in 2019? So that was a sort of technicality. The, the government ended up winning on the technicality, as it were. But you know, as time goes by, the closer we get to this um, 2050 target, the more challenges we're going to have. And these um, groups, they're going to win because, you know, if you're going to want to build an international airport, it's obviously not compatible with a promise to eradicate all carbon emissions by 2050 because we don't have carbon-free planes. They're, they're still running very much on fossil fuels. So um, I don't think the government sort this through. You know, what happens when anything it wants to do, any infrastructure project, any other policy it wants to pursue – just get challenged in the courts and and the government loses. You know, what's it going to do? I mean, eventually it will get to the stage where government will have to say, look, we've got to do something about this. And it will be to water down that 2050 commitment because, um, yeah, we're not going to get anything built. The, the whole net zero strategy was defeated in the High Court in 2022 because, again, you know, the judge said, well, you know, it's not compatible. You know, you, you made this promise to eliminate all net carbon emissions, but you haven't really come up with any plan how to achieve it. So um, government was sent back to the drawing board and still doesn't have a feasible plan to do it. And it won't have a feasible plan to do it until either miracle technological breakthroughs enable us to get there or, um, you know, the government drops the 2050 target. Yeah, the the extent to which um, the net zero idea and the eco ideology more broadly acts as a barrier to our ability to build the things that need to be built and um, create the new forms of energy that need to be created. The, the extent to which it acts as that barrier, I think, is underappreciated by a lot of people. I mean, if you institutionalize this idea that using fossil fuels is terrible and we've got to trim it down as much as humanly possible, uh, you're going to create a vision of every new infrastructural project and every new um, energy production plant as somehow a bad thing that we should be apologizing for and maybe we shouldn't do it at all. Um, and on that, I did want to ask you, you said earlier on that if we're going to reduce our carbon emissions, nuclear power is going to be a central part of that. This is a, an incredibly clean energy. It creates an enormous amount of energy. It's It seems to me a no-brainer that countries should be going much further down that road rather than closing plants down, which has happened in Germany and we're losing plants here in the UK and so on. You will know that lots of green activists, despite their commitment to ridding the world of carbon emissions, are often very hostile to nuclear power. I mean, there are some eco-modernists and there are some um, converted environmentalists who have decided actually nuclear power is the way to go if we really are going to reduce carbon emissions. But there are many more who think nuclear power is as bad as all the rest of it. What do you think that tells us about the environmentalist movement? Are they really interested in just practically making the environment cleaner? Or is this more a kind of ideological opposition to any human interference with nature, I suppose, and any exploitation of natural resources for the end of improving human life. What do you think is driving their hostility to nuclear power alongside all the other stuff? Yeah, well, they're very divided on that issue. I mean, they tend to think of the sort of green movement as one blob, but um, there are some who are 
actually very keen on nuclear power. There are others who um, are dead against it. I mean, you go back to 1970s. I mean, nuclear power was the, you know, the the, the worst thing according to some. I mean, remember people going around with their car stickers saying "nuclear power, no thanks." Um, I think what's happening now is that there are those who think the whole thing can be solved through technology and and often have a sort of Panglossian um, idea of how technology is suddenly magically going to appear to save us. You just set a few targets, then all the problems get solved. But then on the other side, there's the sort of what I call the hair shirt lobby, who, who frankly just seem to want to close down society or close down industrial society and go back to some kind of primitive existence. And often when they're presented with possible solutions, they're incredibly hostile to them. And um, carbon capture and storage is, is a big example of that. I mean, you know, if we can fit carbon capture and storage technology to every gas and coal-fired power station, we could continue to use them while emitting very, very few carbon emissions. I mean, there are caveats there. The technology, it's not novel. It's It's been in use for the past 50 years. It was invented, ironically, for the oil and gas industry to uh, extract the carbon dioxide, pump it underground to force more oil and gas out of the ground. I mean, that's where it came from. But you get this incredible hostility of people saying, oh, that's just some pie in the sky, that's um, not possibly going to happen. And you think, well, it's no more unrealistic to think of that being used than it is of a lot of the other technologies which um, you know we would need to get to net zero. Envi- the environmentalists too, I mean, personally, I think one of the first things we should be doing is putting tidal barrages across the Severn and the Thames and so on. Have a dual purpose um, flood defence and, you know, green energy. We had the plan to put the seven barrage across. And it was basically killed off by environmental lobbyists who were worried about the wading birds would lose some of their um, territory. Well, I mean, there's been plenty of mudflats outside the barrage, but no, they, they couldn't cope with the loss of mudflats up by the Seven Bridge or so on. And that sort of really squashed that project because, um, you know, that's very reliable green technology, very reliable zero carbon electricity. If you put, um, you know, obviously tides come in and out, but the tides are actually quite complementary in the Thames and the Severn, for example. So, you know, when the Severn barrage would be at its peak, the Thames barrage would be, you know, not generating very much um, and, and the other way around. So, I mean, you know, have half a dozen tidal barrages around the country. You can create a constant, you know, supply of electricity by that means. And, um, you know, I think there's one solution that just seems to have been sort of squeezed out by the sort of bird lovers, essentially. We're going to need these things to defend the cities because the you know, Thames Barrier has got a life of about another 50 years. I mean, once that life expired, you know, we've got to replace it with something. There's seven again, you know, Cardiff, Bristol, Gloucester, places very vulnerable to tidal surges and sea levels are rising. So, I mean, you're going to need something there to defend those places. You know, why not think now, put up tidal barrages and have great 
green power as well as tidal defences. We we seem to be unable to sort of think big in in these ways. I agree. That's becoming very clear in recent months and years, of course, uh, that we we're not very good at thinking big on some of these issues. Um, I wanted to ask you about whether you think we might be entering the twilight of eco-extremism. Now, of course, the green ideologues, the ones who are constantly predicting end times as a consequence of mankind's rapacious attitude towards nature, Extinction Rebellion, Just Up Oil, they're still around, they're still making lots of noise, they're still attaching themselves to works of art or throwing soup at the Mona Lisa or whatever else they might do. They're still out there, but there is, I find, a very large amount of public hostility to them, not only to the actions that they take, but also to some of their crazier claims about billions of people frying if we don't get to net zero by you know next week or something. Um, and you wrote an interesting piece for The Spectator about a new salvation poll, which I found very heartening, which is that 31% of Brits between the ages of 13 and 17 think that climate change and its effects are being purposefully over-exaggerated. Now, that's the age group, and I find this with my nephews and nieces and their friends, that's the age group at which kids tend to be very instinctively green. You know, they get fed it at school, they hear it from Greta Thunberg, or they at least they did before she turned 21 and became a bit of a Gaza obsessive. That's the age at which they tend to be binary in moral terms, and you think that, you know, there are good people over here and bad people over there, and the world will come to an end unless the good people win. Um, so that finding is quite significant, I think, that some young people think it's been purposefully overblown, presumably in order to have an impact on how people think about the world or how they behave. So what's your take on where we are at with youthful environmental activism and that kind of more extremist element that we've seen in Just Up Oil and other movements in recent years? Yeah, of course, some of the Green Lobby saw that poll and they thought, oh dear, you know, kids are being got at by right-wing conspiracy theories funded by the oil industry, the usual sort of rubbish. I think more to the point is that Teenagers aren't stupid. They might often be quite idealistic. But if they're told the world's going to end tomorrow, we're going to fry. And, um, you know, what did I hear on the BBC the other day? Sort of casual book of the week, you know, casual sort of claim that the earth was going to lose most of its trees by 2050 and most of its habitable lands. And, you know, I mean, anybody who knows anything about, you know, the basics about the global environment knows that's rubbish. I mean, the tree cover has retreated by us a one or two percent over this century. It's not got to the stage where we're going to lose most of our trees. We keep being told sort of, you know, the world's going to starve and climate change is affecting um, food production and so on. And if you actually look at the data from the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, yields on all the main crops have increased dramatically over the past 50 years, last 20 years, last 10 years. You know, there is no retreat in the ability of agriculture to feed us, either by reason of climate change or any other means. And I think you know, you don't have to be fed very much of this hysterical stuff to start asking yourself, well, actually, you know, is this real or is it just um, people trying to frighten us? And, and you know, we've, we saw this um, film, didn't we, the 
day after tomorrow, which was about 2008, I think it went out. And at the time it went out, the Pentagon, of all people, put out a report claiming that um, Europe was going to have a Siberian climate by 2020. Well, that didn't quite work out, did it? But we've had this back again this week, the bizarre paper claiming that um, the Atlantic meridional overturning circulation, that's what it is. It's basically the system of um, ocean currents which keeps the water warm around Britain. It's always going to break down you know, as the fresh water from uh, glacial melt in Greenland diverts the water. It's all going to break down and Britain's going to have this um, Siberian climate. They've uh, they put it back from 2020 to possibly 2025 now, like next year. But, you know, quite a lot of scientists have been pushing back against that one and said, look, this is modelling. It is rather extravagant modelling where they've made these sort of huge assumptions about amounts of fresh water from Greenland, which are vastly in excess of what is likely to happen. And they've stretched their models to sort of um, get this answer. <laughs> I mean, even if that circulation system did break down, well, I mean, Britain's still, you know, still on the edge of a large amount of water a large ocean and sea on the other side as well. I mean, there's no way we're going to end up with a Siberian climate, a climate of the interior of Siberia. You know? So the most that would happen, we'd have a sort of climate of, um, you know, you get on the other side of the Atlantic, we'd be sort of Labrador or somewhere like that. It, you know, you wouldn't get to the interior of Siberia. That's just complete and utter nonsense. But, you know, the idea that, you know, one day we've been told we're going to fry, and then the next day we're going to told we're going to be frozen to death. And you say, well, you know, this is completely ridiculous. You can't be told it's going to be ice-free at the North Pole, and then suddenly where we are now, 51, 52 degrees north, and it's all going to be deep frozen. Well, it just doesn't make sense at all. If you're a regular listener to this show or a regular reader of Spiked, why not become a Spiked supporter? Spiked Supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked supporter and get access to lots of exciting perks. Spiked supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse. This is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us and listen to us. We're incredibly grateful for your generosity. If you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spike supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and when you put it like that, it's so clear that it, that it doesn't make sense. I wonder if there's an element where they have become the boy who cried wolf, except the wolf is not going to turn up in this case, in my view. Um, but, you know, so if you look at when the day after tomorrow came out a few years ago that you mentioned there, which is about the end of the world as a consequence of climatic catastrophe, it reminded me of a film from the 80s called The Day After, which was a film about nuclear war and a nuclear winter and the deaths of millions of people 
which we watched when we were kids and we were suitably terrified by it, which I think was the aim of it. And it did make me think, you know, you have the day after in the 80s and the day after tomorrow in the 2000s um, about different issues, but with a similar message, which is that the world could come to an end very quickly and, and we could all be doomed very quickly and it can come out of the blue. You never know when it's going to happen. And you think about all the apocalyptic stories that green activists or environmentalist writers have been telling us for such a long time, you know, uh, there'll be a new ice age and now we're told it's global boiling. Uh, that's the real problem. Um, you know, acid rain was a huge issue for a while. The ozone layer was the big story in the 1980s, but that seems to be in pretty good health now. Uh, the Great Barrier Reef was dying one moment, but actually it seems to be doing pretty well at the moment. So do you think there's an element where they can only tell us so many apocalyptic stories that don't actually come to fruition uh, before we start asking, you know, what's really going on here? And then that seems to include kids aged between 13 and 17 who seem to be saying, look, this doesn't really stack up anymore. Yeah, well, the beauty about climate change, of course, is that the predictions were far enough in the future, or once were far enough in the future, that um, you could keep spinning these tales and um, get away with it. But, um, you know, we're sort of 40 years into this big scare now, and um, a lot of those sort of predictions, forecasts and so on have um, failed to occur. How many times have we been told we've had five years, seven years to save the earth and the deadline has come and gone without anything much happening. Um, it's got to the stage where, you know, these predictions can be tested against reality. And, I mean, it's true that global temperatures are rising and, uh, you know, there are several data sets which give pretty good agreement on that, not quite total agreement. But um, what's been noticeable in the last few years is the number of predictions about extreme weather and the number of claims about extreme weather, which are just simply wrong. Every time we had a storm in Britain, we get somebody popping up on the radio saying, oh, these storms are going to become more severe. They're becoming more severe as a result of climate change. But if you actually look at the real data, it has the opposite. The maximum extreme wind speeds measured in Britain are on a downwards trend. If you look at the sort of hurricanes in the United States, landfalling hurricanes in the United States, no trend in 200 years. Um, but still, we will get people on the radio and often respected scientists as well saying that we're getting more hurricanes because of climate change. It simply isn't true. Every time we have a flood, we're told it's um, down to climate change. And you think, well, Actually, is that all climate change or is there some land management issues there? We keep building homes on floodplains and then when they flood, we say, oh, it's climate change. Well, no, it's building in stupid places. And um, I mean, overall rainfall has increased in Britain by about six or seven percent in the past half century. But that doesn't necessarily translate to a higher flood risk because some um, Evaporation also necessarily increases with temperature. I mean, obviously, evaporation and rainfall have to balance in ultimately across the world. So um, it doesn't follow that just because the world sees more rainfall that we get a more extensive flooding problem. And, you know, every time I hear this claim, I sort of want to see the data. And the only 
data that is available on this is a bit out of date now, but there was a study which um, measured the uh, maximum flood flow of over 2,000 rivers across um, the world between 1961 and 2005. And what it found was that the maximum flood flow had increased in 7% of rivers, it had decreased in 11% of rivers, and in the rest of them, there was no real change. So, I mean, that's what the data tells you. But, of course, what we get is people talking about specific events and they will say, it's all down to climate change. And by reporting every single weather disaster, it's possible to build it up into this sort of apocalyptic vision that the world is suddenly being attacked by um, uh, extreme weather. And Forest fires, another thing. I mean, if you actually look at the data, the NASA satellite data, it shows a decrease in areas burnt by wildfires over the past 20 years. If you look at US forest fire data, which goes back a century, um, what you find is that there's been an increasing trend over the past 40 years, but still that hasn't counted the very big downward trend between the 1920s and the 1970s because we became much better at fighting fires. And um, you know, the reason we're getting so many big fires now is because for so many years, the, a lot of the woodlands in the west of the United States were deprived of fires, a, a fire deficit, uh, as um, scientists call it, because you know forest fires are, are pretty natural events and normally they clear out the dead wood at the bottom of the forest floor. But if you don't get a fire, then the dead wood builds up and up, and that is fuel. You know, So when you do get a fire, it becomes a bigger fire. And that's really the story of these very big fires we've been having on the west coast of the US in the past few years and you know, areas of Greece and so on. It's as much a land management issue as it is anything to do with climate. But we don't get told that story, of course. Absolutely not. We certainly don't. Um, it's too juicy an opportunity to scare us some more about the end of the world. Um, another new thing, well, it's not new, but it has certainly intensified in recent months, is the, the rise of agrarian populism and the revolt of the farmers in Europe. Now being joined by farmers in India, that's a, a more long-standing conflict over the price of crops and so on, but Indian farmers are now taking to the streets too. Um, I want to get your views on this. It seems to me that it's almost like a new peasant's revolt. And I don't use that word peasant in a derogatory way at all. But there is a very clear pushback in Europe in particular against various different problems that are being foisted onto farmers. Uh, very strict carbon emissions rules, nitrogen oxide rules, um, farmers potentially having to cut back on their dairy livestock or even close down their farms entirely in order to meet the climate change requirements of the nation in which they're operating. French farmers seem to be particularly angry at imports and um, well, with a single market, really, and the, the ease with which uh, products can flow from different countries into France and around Europe. They're a bit ticked off with some of that. Um, and we had an, the extraordinary spectacle of farmers in their tractors going to Brussels, surrounding the European Parliament. I feel like it didn't get half enough of the coverage that it deserved. It was such an extraordinary sight. 
Uh, you wrote a really interesting piece for The Telegraph. Um, I really like the headline. It's one of those headlines where you just click on it instantly. The headline was, European farmers have stolen our Brexit thunder. Uh, and then you say, Brexit was too polite. Uh, these farmers aren't going to sit around discussing matters in a village hall. I like to think Brexit was a bit more radical than people sitting around in a village hall. But I think you're right that this seems to be a continuation of the Brexit idea, that kind of pushback against the technocratic rulers of Europe in particular, but in a much more fiery way on the streets, being led by the men and the women who make our food and who feel like they're being very badly mistreated. What's your general view on the farmers' revolt? Within the populist story of the past few years, how do you see it? Well, uh, farmers are under attack from all kinds of directions in, in Europe. I mean, this whole thing began with in the Netherlands, where um, you know the Netherlands has been set targets by the EU to reduce nitrate pollution in rivers and, and so on. And nitrate pollution is a problem. It's quite true. Um, it needs to be reduced. And if you don't reduce it, you get the problems that they've had in Brittany, where you get um, this huge growth of algae on the beaches. And um, you know, so it's poisoned a lot of sort of rivers and um, it killed a few people as well. This sort of seaweed as it rots uh, emits hydrogen sulfide, which is very, very um, toxic. So, I mean, there's nothing wrong with the overall aim of trying to reduce nitrate pollution. But it's the way that the sort of Netherlands government went about it with the EU targets on its back. I mean, as it happens, Dutch farmers have more than half their nitrate emissions in the past 30 years anyway. And the farming practices, I'm sure there are a lot of room for improvement in farming practices. But, you know, if you're thinking it rationally, you think, well, let's solve the nitrate problem. But instead, what the Dutch government decided to do was say, well, we'll close down half the farms and we'll chuck um, generous retirement deals at the farmers, buy them out and close them down and return them to nature. Well, <laughs> Netherlands farming industry is what a huge success in Europe. Now, I, I don't have much sympathy, by the way, for the French farmers demanding protection from imports. But the Dutch farmers are a completely um, different story. They they're one of the smallest recipients of the common agricultural policy subsidies in Europe. And small country, and yet they have become the world's second largest agricultural export market. They're, you know, they're incredibly successful. And you think, well, government then comes along and says, we want to close half of you down. Well, it's a completely ridiculous and counterproductive way of doing it. Although that's about nitrate pollution. Of course, it comes back to the net zero thing, because of course, agriculture is a very large emitter of carbon emissions, both from the, the use of uh, fuel to plough the fields and so on, but also you know, disturbing the land, ploughing it up and so on, just release carbon from the soil. And then there's the ruminating animals, of course, produce a lot of methane, which is greenhouse gas. So if your sole aim is to reduce a country's carbon emissions and its territorial emissions, I mean, the logical thing is close down the farming industry and import your food instead, and then it appear on someone else's balance sheets. And I mean, that's essentially what's sort of going on in Europe at the moment. And um, hardly surprisingly, the farmers are pushing back against it. And um, 
for the mail, they have scored a victory. The um, EU has uh, watered down some of its environmental targets because, you know, it has had to accept the the argument that they've had some perverse outcomes. Yeah, and uh, I think the whole um, farmers' revolt, much of which I have found very inspiring and very enlivening, and I think it's shaken up European politics in a way that it really needed to be shaken up. But I think it really speaks to an extraordinary disconnect between the present ruling class, the rulers of society, who seem to live in a completely different world and don't understand production, manufacturing, food creation, farming, that earthy stuff which societies completely rely upon in order to create food, transport it, move it around, feed people. You know, that it really speaks to that disconnect that you can quite breezily in your citadel of anti-democracy, like in Brussels, draw up all these stiff rules for what farmers need to do with no consideration to what farmers do for their countries and do for the people in those countries in terms of providing them with food and nourishment. It really is an extraordinary snapshot of the current political system, I think. And um, that leads me on to my last question for you, Ross, which is where you think the discussion about farmers, the discussion about the European Union, um, a niggling sense among lots of people that net zero is a problem or might have damaging consequences for them. Uh, where do you think this is all going? Because you had an interesting line in your piece on, on the farmers where you said that it's clear now that Brexit was just a harbinger of what was to come. Mass dissension against an undemocratic, over-centralised bloc that is damaging uh, the livelihoods of many of its citizens. That's a reference to the EU, of course. So do you think we're going to see a continuation of creeping climate scepticism among sections of the public, a bristling against net zero, and certainly a bristling against their technocratic rulers? Do you think that populist moment is going to continue for the time being? Yeah, there's a lot of support for the farmers, protests in in Europe, a lot of... um support for uh, steel workers in Britain and, and so on. And um, these two things are colliding. Uh, you know, the sort of admiration for the people who put food on the table and do manufacture stuff, you know, colliding with, with these um, net zero targets. And I think this is a fundamental problem is that we are led by a political class which um, moves from you know, university course on the environment or university course on politics and straight into power and has no real connection with, um, you know, industry, agriculture or the communities where they are conducted. And, um, I mean, you see it, you know, on the steel issue of Port Talbot, MPs, like Stephen Kinnock, who would sort of um, normally might be drawn to the uh, environmental side. I mean, he, you know, he's up there and with the steel workers and saying this is ridiculous and so on. And I think, you know, we need a few more representatives of the people who can see that issue from both sides rather than just being swept over by this sort of ideology which seems to have grown up in the political classes that sort of obsesses about things like net zero and um, thinks it can be imposed upon the public. And I think after COVID, there was this sort of idea, wasn't there, among some in the political class, scientific class, who said, well, look, We've just shown that people's behaviour can be controlled in a way that we never imagined before. And um, we started getting academic papers saying 
well, you know, if you can, COVID lockdowns can work, well, then surely more severe climate um, measures will be accepted by the population as well. But um, I think the evidence on the ground is that that's not going to wash, that um, you're not going to get away with closing down your farming industry. You're not going to get away with stopping people traveling, flying. You're not going to get away with um, uh, losing industry, farming and everything. So um, there is a very big pushback, I think, in the making against uh, net zero. And I think any government that thinks it can um, steamroller this issue over the population is going to find itself in a very uncomfortable place. Ross, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.